Hey everybody, I'm Corrine Levy and this is Script Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. Today we're chatting with Adam Rogers, an editor at Wired, and perhaps more importantly for the purposes of the Scrib Chat and my life as a lover of cocktails, the author of the book titled Proof, The Science of Booze, which is available on Scribd. So hello, Adam. Hello there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us at the Scribd headquarters in our library. It's my pleasure. I have a beautiful view. You're facing me, but I have a corner view out of, looking out at San Francisco. So Amazing. I'm, I'm Good. Fine. We put our guests in the in the right spot. That's right. Um, I'm looking at a bookshelf of books. <laughs> Seems appropriate, actually. <laughs> yes, of yeah. course. So um, I just want to say that I love the book. Thank you. It's very nice <laughs> of you. I read it um, in the past couple of days, and... You know, I've been to a couple of whiskey tastings and mm-hmm. like I've been to um, on a few distillery tours and stuff like that. So I had an image in my mind while I was reading the book, but I thought that it you put it into like words that I could actually understand. That so, is a good thing. Yes. That was my hope. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that the other thing, having been on a few distillery tours myself, as you'd probably imagine, um, I was very, one of the things I really wanted to try to do with the descriptions of the places was to be be more egalitarian in my thinking about sensory descriptions because sure. one thing that I I was I was trying to be very conscious of is that print ironically is I think the best medium for conveying uh, the chemical senses for conveying s- smell and taste um, because you can do that through words it's something that a movie or a TV show can't do sure uh, you can have a character I suppose say like here's what something tastes like but I was trying to figure out if if I could capture in a way that would make those those scenes and there aren't there aren't a lot of them but that would make those scenes more immediate the um the aroma of the distillery because the the smells and and tastes if they let you taste stuff in a distillery really do get recapitulated in the final product and if you've been on a tour and you get to taste if you go on on a distillery tour for whiskey sometimes they'll let you taste the white dog or the the new make at the end and you taste the clear unaged spirit and then if you taste the aged spirit when it's finished at the end you really do get this kind of um like chronological this chronology this journey Exactly. Um, through the flavors when you take a sip that then you can you can taste the you can taste them almost smell and taste them in sections as you walk through the distillery and through the, the rickhouse and 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 I was trying to get at that because that I always like finding places where the spatial and temporal uh, experiences overlap mm-hmm. um, and they really do that in distillery you really do get the 12 years of aging the 10 days of distilling and the 10,000 years of history that's all behind it all in that in that one place totally and then especially when you you know when you were describing like walking into the distillery and then it smells like bread or it right. smells like you know whatever else or or the rice you know when you were going to the sake distillery and it smelled like certain things like that definitely everybody knows what baking bread you know smells like that's and right so even if you've never had a taste of alcohol in your life you kind of got a sense of and what we're it dealing snaps with. you to the place and i'll tell i'll tell a secret i actually did not go to that sake brewery oh then you did a really excellent job <laughs> and when i was when I was on the phone with um, with that Toji, the only Western Toji, the only non-Japanese-born sake master sake brewer. I had this interview with him where I was, he's very articulate and he knows his stuff, where I was trying to make sure I extracted all those sensory moments from him because I knew I wanted to convey what a sake brewery was. So I, so we see that in the book. We see that. I will, I'll, I'll be as kind to myself and my reporting as possible. We see that through his eyes and smell sure. that through his nose. Awesome. I yeah. And I, and I think, you know, later in the book, you talk about how it's really hard to describe tastes or smells you have to like describe it as it tastes like something That's right. else the object or, metaphor problem yeah and so i think like it smells like bread or it tastes like you know like is a really good description of what whiskey you know yes. pr- production smells like or tastes yes. like so 
please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of what got you into science or how you got here to write this book. Sure. Let's see. I never know where to. I never know how back, how far back to start before it's too boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought I was going to be a scientist who also wrote, and then I found that I had a, a limited, let's say, a limited ability in the lab. Um, I was the I was the person who was the last one to leave lab in college and broke a lot of glassware, and, <laughs> and also honestly found it kind of boring. Not because doing science is not an amazing practice and the best way that human beings have of knowing anything about the world, but I, I, I also wanted to do other kinds of science. Like I couldn't imagine only doing the one thing. And I had this, this moment where a mentor of mine, a, a really a great biology professor, when I was having a conversation about this with him, said, you know, I know there, there is one worm that it's just my worm. And that's the thing that I know the most about in the world. And I thought to myself, that's amazing, but I cannot imagine only having a worm. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to <laughs> learn. I guess I, I would like to be wider and shallower than any of the researchers sure. who I was met, meeting at the time. So I ended up, um, because all I knew how to do at that point was go to school. I went to graduate school in science journalism. Uh, I don't have any writers or reporters in my family. I had one who was a playwright, but I didn't know anybody. I, I'm a, I'm you know, the child of school teachers from Los Angeles and just had no access to that world. So I went to graduate school and got into that world. And, and when I left with a degree in science journalism, which at the time was sort of a new thing, there were only two programs really that, that did it then. I got a job as a fact checker at Newsweek working for Sharon Begley, who's now at STAT, who is for my money, one of the top 10 science journalists in the English language. And Sharon was patient enough to try to explain to me how to become a reporter. And uh, and so I did, and I got to cover all kinds of fields, anything from, you know, it was geology one week and, and biotechnology the next week and paleontology the next, which I loved, all the while kind of nurturing an interest as a person with a full-time, fairly well-remunerated remunerated job in his mid-20s <laughs> in 1990s New York of drinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... and at the time, though I didn't know this was going to be important, there was a book on the giveaway pile at Newsweek. The books would come in and they would just pile them up on a desk. People didn't want them, called Cocktail. And this was a, a book by um, a bartender who at the time was um, here in Emeryville and an editor who I didn't know at the time, who I did eventually get to work with because she was at Wired. And they had started what at the time was not called a blog, but in fact was a blog about cocktails. A guy named Paul Harrington would write these little histories of drinks. And I read that thing on the subway. Like I brought it and I just poured over it and got obsessed with the aviation as a cocktail because it was the first, because it required a, it required maraschino liqueur, which at the time wasn't available in the United States. And Harrington's recipe didn't actually have, it didn't have all the ingredients that the original recipes did, but I didn't know that at the time. But I started to realize there was a, there was a literature of this stuff. And, um, and eventually went to a bunch of whiskey tastings and was getting more interested in that. And, and finally went to Scotland and, said, I'm going to Scotland, I'm going to distilleries, I want to learn more about this. The way that my father, when I was growing up, had gone in the 80s, had gone to um, wineries in Napa and Sonoma. They would travel up to the wine country when that was kind of a new thing. And when I told my dad I was going, he said, I want to go. And I said, okay, but you have to understand, I'm not going to museums, we're not playing golf, I'm not going to castles, I don't care about locks, I'm going to distilleries. That's it. That's all we're doing. This is like a drinking tour. Well, you or know, a, or a background. Of yeah, it, but I mean, here's the so as a side as a side note, we actually didn't drink that much on that trip. We we tasted a lot, but there were like specific distilleries that I'd had the whiskey from that I wanted to go to that didn't have tours, and we had to go and like talk our way into the seeing behind the scenes and seeing having curtains pulled back and seeing the kind of inside story about how people made these this spirit that 
had started to assume for me a kind of larger symbolism because of its history, because of all the things that it requires to make, because of where it comes from, because of how hard it is to make a good version of it, because of how complicated it tastes. And so my dad came. We actually did end up going to a castle or two and a couple of museums, I have to admit. But my dad came in that, that, that trip. Uh, is kind of recapitulated in the um, in the trip to Scotland. It's in the in the book in a way, though I didn't take dad on that one. So I was getting interested in it, and at the time, because I'm a I'm a reporter and a pack rat, I was collecting journal articles. I would see an article or I'd see a news thing on the science of how these things were made, because I was just really fascinated when when you go into a bar and you see all those bottles behind the bar. And so this was the mid '90s, and so the sort of cocktail thing was just starting to happen, and nice bars were just starting to happen in, in Manhattan. I wanted to know what was in those bottles, and I didn't know. So I would, I would try stuff, and I would ask, and I would read about it, but I, nothing really came of it. And then I left Newsweek, came to Wired, and I got wind of a story. I was sort of in the backwaters of social media, and I saw a an editorial from the journal Mycology. I don't know how I got there. I don't remember how I got there. It must have been a link from somebody else on Twitter. I wish I remembered who that said, hey, you know, this one lab um, in Canada has another paper talking about that uh, this fungus that they're the only ones who characterized that grows on the walls of whiskey warehouses, aging warehouses. And I read that and I thought, this is not a news story. This is the last chapter in a mystery because this scientist, who I didn't know, had figured out the name and the taxonomy for a fungus that nobody understood and at the time thought that it basically was unique to whiskey warehouses. And I thought that was fascinating. And, uh, and I thought there had to be a story there. So, of course, being the, um, the gung-ho, um, hard-charging reporter that I am, I sat on it for about nine months, <laughs> uh, not knowing what to do with it. And then I finally pitched it in a pitch meeting at Wired as a story. There's a, a, the mystery of this unknown whiskey fungus that turned out to be an entirely new genus of fungus, thinking that I would edit it and I would have somebody else write it. And it was in a little spiral notebook. And the, um, the response of the room was so good Everybody was so into it when I told the story because, I mean, as you can tell when I tell it, I was really compelled by this and everybody else was, I told it well enough that they were compelled by it too. And so as I, as I finished, I said and did not know I was going to say, and I would like to write this. And, and they, they was like, green light. Yeah, that sounds like a great story. So of course, again, being a hard charging gung-ho reporter that I am, I sat on it again for about six months, didn't do anything with it, which meant that I didn't travel to, to Canada until the dead of winter. So <laughs> freezing cold trip, but I finally did the story and, and it was and it became, as I hoped it would, first of all, a mystery story. I had this, a researcher, James Scott, who identified himself as a consulting mycologist. And so if you were a Sherlock Holmes fan, you'll remember that the way Sherlock Holmes identified himself was as a consulting detective. He wasn't a private detective, he was a consulting detective. And so when James said, I'm a consulting mycologist, I thought, I have a detective. And didn't realize until the story finally won, won an award at the end of that year when it came out. And what I said at the time was, I, I was so glad when I did the story that I could find a Sherlock Holmes and it didn't even occur to me that I was Watson. Right, because you were going along with Because I went along with him and <laughs> yeah. I wrote I wrote his story that it was like, oh my God, I got to be Watson in a science mystery. That's so great. Um, and it was incredible. I mean, obviously I read right. Sherlock Holmes, but if you got to choose, if you, you know. Sure. And that story's in the book. And and that's in the book. Yes. Yeah. So it, it became this feature story for Wired that then became the basis for, for, the, for the chapter on aging mm-hmm. um, in the book as well. And when I wrote, as I was writing it, I would tell other science reporters what I was working on like we talk about and we had this dinner that uh, an editor at Wired at the time threw and and um, with a bunch of science reporters there and a couple of scientists but the the specifically a, a guy named Bill Wasik who was an editor at Wired at the time he's now an editor at the Times New York Times Sunday Magazine and um, Carl Zimmer great science journalist and Carl was there too and I was telling them some stories about how 
you know, from sacrification, fermentation, and distillation work, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what's in the book. And I went through this kind of story about how, like, before they learned to convert the starch in corn into sugar that using malting, that, like, women, the ancient Inca, would chew it because mm-hmm. there are amylases in saliva. So they would chew the corn and spit it out and make it into these cakes that would then dry out. And then the amylase in the saliva would convert the starch into sugar, and then that, you could ferment that um, and make pulque and then uh, and make, make booze, that kind of story. And I went through a bunch of those, and, and then Bill and Carl both looked at me at the same time and said, that's a book. And I said, what's a book? <laughs> and, and Bill said, well, all of it. So all of it. It's yes. all in the book. So that's how that that's that's how it turned into. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so fascinating because we drink this stuff, you know, all the time, and then, like you say, nobody knows what is going on, and so here we have a look at like what's going on the behind the scenes. The key moment for me when I when I finally internalized that it was going to be a book was when I came home after working on it. I, I must have already had the contract or something, so I was already supposed to be writing a book, but I was still terrified. I came home and I said to my wife, "Just double check me on something. Do people know that whiskey is distilled beer?" And she looked at me and said, literally no one but the people who make it and you know that. And then you're like, now I really have a book. It's a book. <laughs> yeah. Now it's a book. So, you know, another thing that you mentioned in the book is the bar moment, which I really mm-hmm. like. And I really like, it's kind of struck a chord with me because I think I agree and I know what you're talking about. So let's, can you tell me more about what you mean by the bar mo- moment? Yeah, I, I think they're, they don't have to happen in bars, but I, I find for me they do. They're these moments of existential perfection where you can be fully present in a place because your circumstances and environment are exactly what you need at that time. And I think, you know, for the business that, that you're in and that I'm in, those moments can come in bookstores and libraries. Those moments can certainly come in coffee shops. Those moments can come in front of a computer when you're typing. But, the, but, but that moment in a bar where there's a perfection, there's a, an, overla- an overlapping set of, of perfect service and flavors and smells and environment and you know, for me, I'm I'm much more of the of sort of quiet wood panel bar type person than a pulsating music club bar type person. But your mileage may vary. But that moment of like having been in the world and coming to what some writers have have called the third place, uh, not home, not work, but a third constructed place. Coming to this bar, that's a highly constructed environment and a well thought out bar. It doesn't have to be fancy or expensive, but a well a well thought out place that you can tell somebody really cared for and considered, considered what bottles were going to be behind the bar, considered what the surface of the bar is going to be made out of, considered what kinds of chairs are going to be sitting in, considered what the person tending the bar is going to be wearing, took into account levels of service like bartenders are never supposed to turn their back to their customers. You can turn sideways, but you don't turn your back, you don't turn around to get something off the bar, of putting a napkin out and putting a drink on top of it and of understanding the the like sort of semi-secret language of if I leave my seat at a bar but put my cocktail napkin over my drink, I'm coming back. Or being able to understand these codes, these um, the special in-grouping and out-grouping um, linguistics of uh, a martini up, not too dry, two alls, and a club soda back. Like that language and being able to do that with facility, I take great pleasure in mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and I take great pleasure in bartenders who take great pleasure in that language. Having that sort of contact, I can imagine having the same thing being at a blackjack table across from a great dealer. I'm not good enough at blackjack to experience that, but I can imagine that being that way too, where you have a moment there that is exists outside your usual time and space. So in the book, I talk about it being always sort of roughly seven o'clock, I think, or it's always sort of roughly dusk inside the bar. It's always the noise levels at a certain point. And the one I was specifically describing was on a very hot and crummy Washington, D.C. day 
where I had been a very unsuccessful Washington, D.C. reporter, finally making my way to meet a friend at a bar and sitting down and having a beer, the cold beer put in front of me and tasting it and it being a great beer at a great, at the exact right moment of everything happening exactly right at the right moment. And I, I know what those, I talk about them as being bar moments in the book because the book's about booze. There's a you know the book Billy Bathgate, E.L. Doctorow's mm-hmm. book Billy Bathgate. He he's got one of the things that his Billy does is juggle, and there are, there are passages about juggling and being sort of perfect, like knowing where he he says he can juggle and know that he, there's no way he could drop a ball even if he tried. That's a bar moment too. It's these moments where where the universe is cycled around to give you just a second of transcendence. Yeah. Um, and I and and that's what I was hoping to capture with that. I, yes, I think so. Or you know, as Oprah says, like the aha moment, or you mm-hmm. where you just know that everything is perfect right now. Yeah. And then it makes sense that that would lead you to write about the rest of the booze. That was my hope. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think after reading this, it's kind of like the making of alcohol takes basically everything that I know from chemistry and biology, which granted is, and even physics, which isn't that much, but it seems that like we can thank booze and the making of booze for a lot of what we know in science or maybe vice versa, just because booze has been around for so long yeah i think that's right I, the 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 not secret agenda of the book too is that there, there's this other you can hold the book you can refract the book through bar moments and cocktails and what kind of whiskey you like and distilleries you visited but it, but you can hold it at a slightly different angle and it refracts as a science book it was it's meant to be a science book it's meant to be both of us it's meant to be a booze book and a science book and so the science the reason it's a science book is that almost every field i could imagine gets represented by some aspect of the process. So yes, there's a lot of chemistry. There's a lot of biotechnology. In fact, the basic history of of biochemistry and biotechnology all grows out of how people understood and then started to manipulate alcohol. There's metallurgy. I loved that. I loved being able to get into why copper is right to make Mm -hmm. stills because I really wanted to understand it. And it took a long time to explain to researchers what I was trying to get at. Like, yeah, but why copper? But what is, yeah, okay, but yes, but why copper? I get that it's malleable, but what, what is it about the way those atoms align that makes them better than steel you know what is it about copper like finally getting somebody to explain that to me was a real triumph in reporting like okay finally i get it just being able to use it as a um to use booze as a lens to sure. look out at the way the universe worked and 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 say now we're going to talk about the history of biotechnology right so ha- have you had any pushback from any maybe distillers or you know booze makers who still consider it or not still but who do consider it an art and is there you know a, can can they be both can it be both that's interesting my nightmare while i was writing it was that when i was finished that i would get to go to a reading or whatever and that some chemist who was also a home brewer would stand up in the back and tell me how i'd gotten all of it wrong and that ha- that still hasn't happened though i still sometimes snap awake thinking it will but no none of them pushed back I certainly I did find myself in the weird position of after really you know I love craft distilling and small especially because it all tastes so weird even if it's not in the same way that craft brewing can be where even if you have something that's not great at least it's local and somebody really poured their heart into it and that's great I ended up in the weird position of being a kind of separate defender of like commodity distilling because a place like Brown Foreman, you know, a, a place like Wild Turkey, Jack Daniels, they are doing science there because they're turning out an ocean of consistent product every year. Whereas I think um, as interested as my friend Lance Winters is at, at St. George Spirits a- across the bay from us in Alameda in science, and he really is, he's a very science-minded guy, but he's very much a craftsman and he wants to do, he, he's going to be guided by the science, but really guided by his nose and his palate. Sure. And in fact, by the end of the reporting for the book, 
I had kind of stopped trying to go to distilleries because I was finding that it's at, at the craft distilleries, at least that the distillers weren't going to be speaking the language I needed them to speak. They were, they could be making a brilliant product. Cause they were talking more about taste and yeah. viscosity and stuff like that. Not about molecules. Yeah. And the reason for that, the reason they weren't speaking that language is that there weren't, there aren't a lot of books and there isn't a lot of research that went into mine. There's, there's enough, you know, thank goodness. And also a lot of it's unknown, which is exciting. It was fun to be able to say like, here's 10,000 years of history and here's the cutting edge of chemistry, of mass spectroscopy and how we study human senses and, and, and things that we still don't know, things that scientists don't know that they're trying to understand via a, you know, a glass of wine. So you, speaking of 10,000 years, you talk a lot or you mention a lot in the book about how, you know, this is civilization in a glass. And um, if, you know, you were dropped on a desert island with just this like book of recipes or whatever that you can start a whole new civilization. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Like, what does that mean? And can you really? I had a, a sort of strange moment in this. I, uh, I'm hesitating to tell the story because I, I, I worry that it will sound disrespectful. So I don't, I don't mean this to sound disrespectful. I was just at a funeral. My wife's grandfather just died. He was in his late 90s. A devout Catholic. And we were at the mass. And so I'm not that. Um, and, and while we were sitting, beautiful service and listening to the pastor deliver the homily and people speak. But there were these two banners behind the dais. Night, beautiful church, sort of mid-century modern kind of 60s, 70s decor. And on these two banners, hanging below the sign of the cross, were decorations on one side were grapes and on the other side was grain. And... Partially that, and, and that's in, in that context, that's because the grape turns into wine, which becomes the blood of Christ, and, and the grain is, becomes the body, and, and, and because those are, but, but those are symbols of civilization, and they're symbols of civilization, this is the part, I, I, I don't mean to disrespect anyone's faith here. The reason those are symbols is not because they represent fertility. They're symbols because you can make beer and wine out yep. of them, because that is what people did when they first started planting those things or when they first started taking advantage of what was naturally growing around them. It is not that they started making grape juice and bread. They were making beer and wine, and they were doing it because it was keeping them alive, because they were calorically dense, because the water was not clean enough to drink, and if you could have a little alcohol in it, it was, and because they were, the, because they were chemically active, they were psychologically active, because they made you feel a thing. Because you felt better that night, and because you had lived a hard life, because you were essentially transitioning from hunter-gatherer to to a agri- to agrarian society, and there and every other human being you met was trying to kill you, and a lot of the animals were trying to kill you too. That's why they symbolize civilization. That's why they're on those banners, in part, I think. <laughs> so anthropologists and archaeologists will still argue about when they when they find grain in the in ancient civilizations whether they were making beer or bread. And, and this is probably both, but a, a lot of beer. If you can learn to make beer, and eventually if you can learn to distill it, what you're doing is you're adding value to a crop. Instead of having to take, you know, whatever, 50 acres of bushels of barley, you take one barrel down to market, and people will pay even more for it than they would have for the bushels. Like, you, you, you're, you're building an economy. It's not just the, the science. You're using science to figure out, science and technology to figure out civilization. You're figuring out credit. You're figuring out how to add value at one stage of an industrial process to then extract that value later. You're, you're, you're learning all the things that we think of. You sit here on the 24th floor of a tall building in downtown of a major metropolis at the at sort of a good chunk of the way into the 21st century on this planet of all the things that if you and I look out these windows and figure out what it took to make all of this around us. It's, 
the, it began, I'm convinced, with somebody saying, if I just could figure out how to make that plant into something people wanted to drink and then get it to them, you know, that's going to change everything. And it did. And it did. Yeah. And so do you think, I mean, going back a little bit, talking about when you were talking about Jack Daniels and Wild Turkey or the little, you know, the little craft beer places or whiskey places, do you think that like, I think part of your book or what I noticed in the book was that everybody was trying to learn how to make, make it faster. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you think that the automation or learning how to make things faster has somehow ruined, you know, the, the liquor business or, you know, ruined it for you, whether by how it tastes or has it, you know, pushed the little guys out or has it just like made it better? That's an interesting question. You know, I think that we sometimes conflate if we're trying to, sometimes I think, especially in booze, I think it might be true in art and other forms too, but in booze, we sometimes don't break authenticity into story and and taste the way we should. So you can get a box of wine from the supermarket and I, I can almost guarantee you it will be delicious. But we we have typically less respect for the for bo- commodity box wine because it doesn't have the same narrative as the person who owns a couple of acres on a on the right slope at the right altitude in Napa with the right terroir to make 200 bottles a year and then it's perfect and we went there that one time on that one trip with our significant other and it was guy had this amazing meal and this is the one bottle that they had and now we're in the wine club and so we get an allotment of three every year and we can tell that story at dinner when we open the one and that makes stuff taste better it literally makes it taste better because taste is a thing that we construct in our heads like anything else in our sensorium but I don't know if the speed with which whoever makes the box wines can generate the wine necessarily makes it taste worse. They change the they change the story. I also have a lot of respect for an industrial story in the same way that I do for a craft story. They're different, for sure. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for the 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 largest Anheuser the largest brewery in the world. I think this is still true. The largest brewery in the world is Anheuser Busch AB InBev Brewery here in California. The the fact that they're able to make that much Budweiser. And in, every time they do it, it's Budweiser in, in pipes that are big enough to drive a Volkswagen Beetle through is a remarkable human achievement. Is every bit as remarkable a human achievement as what they used to do at Anchor, you know, to make Anchor Steam here in San Francisco, what was one of the first and still best craft beers. So I don't think that industrialization and commercialization in and of themselves ruin any of the kind of booze that we're talking about. Sometimes they do, <laughs> to be fair. I think that uh, craft brewing right now is in a little bit of a crisis because the large transnational brewers are buying up all the craft breweries. And even if they keep their promises to not change the personnel or the um, process, which they often don't after the first whatever period of time, as soon as you change the ingredients, as soon as you commodify the corn and barley that's going into the beer instead of whatever the local stuff was that they were buying, you're going to change the flavor of that beer. And I think that's the thing to worry about. Same might be true with big wine brands and, and big transnational booze brands buy up craft distilleries to the extent that that happens. So I guess that was a, a long trip to get to. No, I don't think that uh, that speed in and of itself um, ruins the flavor or even the experience. I do think that that like to the extent that there's such thing as responsible drinking, even beyond like don't drink too much so that you don't drive unsafely and don't become violent and don't become crazy and don't become addicted, which are all serious and important things, right? Like it's a whole thing that the book intentionally doesn't deal with because that's not where the book lives. There are better books about that stuff. But like if you're being responsible in the sense of giving your money to people who you want to have your money, 
it's important to know those narratives. There's also a little bit of, for spirits, at least for aged spirits and wine, there's a certain amount of time that no technologist has ever been able to compress out of the process. And they're still trying. There are people who are working on it, who are working on chemistry and physics that will enable them to make the flavors that I might value out of an 18-year-old whiskey, but to do it in half the time or whatever. But nobody's figured it out yet, which is also kind of magical, right? Like there's sure. a, there is a real beauty in that, that they we're not that smart yet. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> then you can still enjoy your, you know, your aged whiskey. That's right. So, so you know, you devoted an, a whole chapter to the smell and the taste of the liquor that we're talking about. But then you also admit that, of course, everybody's different and mm-hmm. everybody's noses and taste buds and brains are different and, and can like, you know, process that information differently. And then we still can't, you know, something that's good to me or a wine that I like, you might hate. So... I guess that leads me to what you were saying about like the different glassware that people use to make it taste better <laughs> yep. or to smell better. And, you know, I ha- I drink my wine out of mason jars because I think they're easier to hold when yeah. I'm at home. And I had a friend who was like, you are rooting the taste of that uh-huh. liquor. Yes. Is is he right? You the, Clearly, when the revolution <laughs> comes, you will be the first. <laughs> no. The, uh, the only, I guess the only thing I would say about drinking wine out of a, a, a not stem glass or a jar warm. Uh, is that the temperature will change. Maybe you don't care. I tend to drink wine out of a glass that doesn't have, that's not a stemmed glass also. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not alone. I, I drink very cheap wine at home. Um, and I drink a lot of sake at home, which is cold, but you don't have to have it like soup. Anyway, like... <laughs> I, I feel like, again, as part of being kind of considered, let's not say responsible, because that is for me, being a considered drinker about this, like you, maybe you should have an opinion, but it's hard to find a wrong opinion. There's a thing in, uh, in nerd culture generally, which is another thing that I cover, sort of, you know, science fiction and stuff like that, uh, of, um, you know, especially as a, as a consequence of late because of the con- confluence of social media and people not being good human beings, uh, of the way nerds especially deal with each other online and in person to Comic-Con or whatever of like undermining someone's credibility. It's especially bad uh, between men and women. A lot of Gamergate was sort of about that uh, in addition to egregious misogyny. But like one of the things that some of the the sort of nerd writers who I like a lot were starting to say was we kind of have some language where you say, you don't say that's terrible or they're ruining that. You say, that's not for me. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And that's, I think that's important. And I think maybe I didn't know this about my own nerd culture that like people didn't know how to do that. You know, they didn't know how to say like Star Trek Discovery, terrible. No, I actually like it. But also (laughs) Star Trek Discovery, not for me. Prefer the original series. Fine. Which is fair. That should be great. In fact, that should be a thing that you and I should be able to sit down over a drink and talk about. Like, well, what do you you like about what? Here's what I like about that. Oh, that's interesting. Here's things we have in common. Here's things we don't have in common. That makes us human beings to each other. That's great. And I think that should be true about what kind of booze we drink and the way we drink it. I will admit that an order of like a raspberry marshmallow flavored vodka on the rocks will probably earn an eye roll from me. I'm not the, you know, I still haven't, I'm still trying to achieve. (laughs) You're um, getting there. I'm trying to get there, but, but you know, people should drink what they like and how they like it. And the conversation about it should be the interesting part. What else are you going to talk about at the bar? That's a thing to talk about at a bar. Oh, you're getting that. I'm getting this. You can get this too. And here's the thing that I know about that thing. And that might make it more interesting to drink. 
Yeah, which I totally get. And I think that one of the reasons why people get so intimidated about ordering drinks or ordering wine off of a menu, besides that they can't pronounce it, is that, you know, when the sommelier starts saying, like, tobacco first and (laughs) tastes like earth, you're like, I don't know what that means, but, like, I like this wine. I think that stepping away from that and just being like, oh, it kind of tastes like, you know, how I felt when I was on that vacation or whatever, if it, like brings up something in your mind it's kind of as good as saying that it tastes like tobacco i think that's right i think that there is a a thing that uh, all the research about how sommeliers taste versus how you know proles like you and me taste uh, uh, is mostly that they're it's not that their palate's more educated it's that their language is more educated they know more descriptors and so they can use them and deploy them more appropriately that's not that that are we allowed to curse am i allowed to curse I don't sure. know. that's not bullshit that's a real thing but it, it, it is a difference my two the, the two tricks I deploy most often in these kind of situations, especially with wine, which, I, which I'm okay at, but not great. I'm much better with whiskey. I'm not great with wine, is I will tell a sommelier, I would like to spend about this much. I want something weird. Bring something weird, which sommeliers love, by the way, because they get to bring not the thing that everybody who reads Wine Spectator, right. no offense to Wine Spectator, not the thing that everybody's reading Wine Spectator, so I want this thing because it's a Parker 98 or whatever. Like, no, bring something weird and interesting. And then let's talk about that. And and you can do that at a bar too. I really like whiskey. Bring me something weird. You can do that now. Now it's a golden age for being able to do that. The other thing I would say is at a tasting, at any kind of tasting, if you go taste wines, if you're at a whiskey tasting, if you're at a bar, if you have order a wine from a sommelier, don't let them tell you first what it tastes like. That ma- taste yes. it first. And Think then, about it for a second. And then you can tell them what it tastes like to you. You tell them and then have them tell you because they'll give you more words and you'll go, oh, I did get le- I did get leather out of that. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. I totally, I didn't know what that was, but I got, but if they tell you first, they're incepting you. I mean, I can put any, I can put red wine in front of you and make you think you're tasting anything in it. Like I know how to do that trick. And that, it's not cheating, but like it's less fun when you go to the tasting. Taste it first and then say, here's what I think I taste. Here's what I'm getting here. Now tell me what I should be tasting. Then now it's an educational process when you do that, mm-hmm. um, and that goes that goes back to the thing I was talking about before about about drinking the things that you like, how you like them. You want to learn more things. You want to learn more about them because that's just fun. Otherwise, what's the yeah? What's I mean, I I think in the book the line that I highlighted, if I could have highlighted it twice, I would have was that the small what you just said with this that the sommeliers don't actually have a better palate than you. They just have like better words to describe it. And Somalis might disagree, by the way. I know. I, I'm sorry I'm to getting, all my I'm, Somalia friends. Yeah, we're going to get email. <laughs> I know. It's good. We're causing a, a commotion. Um, so you mentioned in the beginning of the book that vodka soda is a crap drink. And <laughs> I did later you also I'm, bashed. And maybe I regret that a little bit now. <laughs> you should. That's one of my drinks that I order. But it has to be the right kind of vodka. I don't just drink any okay, vodka. that's fair. And then later you also bashed the Bloody Mary. <laughs> and so, um, I'll defend my Bloody Mary. Passion. Okay, I actually kind of agree about the Bloody Mary. Although your um, suggestion about the Bloody Maria, which is with tequila instead of vodka, like, yep. fair enough, good there choice. You go. So, what is your favorite drink that you order at the bar? And um, what would you recommend if somebody were you know just turned twenty one, wants to oh, seem a little cooler, and doesn't what a great question. Just order the Cape Cods, which yeah. is what I ordered for like five years before I knew anything. Can I tell you what the first drink was that I when I turned legal? What the very first drink I ordered Please. legal was frozen strawberry daiquiri amazing in Las Vegas and it was probably delicious with my parents <laughs> yes awesome <laughs> I think mine was like a mine was a um not a gr- no what was mine I think mine was a Long Island at like TGI Fridays oh boy it messed me up yeah of course would. which is the point yeah it was uh, gross too it's not yeah, I mean, yeah, that's no, not a good drink not a good drink 
Also, why would you want to drink that tasted anything like iced tea? You want iced tea? Get an iced tea. Exactly. Like, <laughs> which is part of my point about the about the Bloody Mary, by the way, which is the, the if I talk smack about a Bloody Mary, it's that Bloody Mary is a whole bunch of ingredients I really, really like. And then with vodka so that it will get you messed up also. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I'm, I, if it tastes that way, that's how I want it to taste. Now, with tequila in it, it tastes like something pretty spectacular. That's okay. a whole other drink. I'll go try that tomorrow morning. But, so right, I I, uh, I distracted myself. What, what should a 21-year-old order and what's my order? I'm very situation dependent. I'm, I'm super context-y. Um, you know, like cool San Francisco winter night with a little mist outside. I'm like whiskey neat. What's a, what's a good, especially like, oh, they have an interesting Japanese, Nika coffee still, Japanese whiskey up there, neat. Or with like a little bit of ice and a glass next to it in case I want to water it down because if they're very high proof, I don't like, I like tasting them, but then I don't like the flavor of it and they upset my stomach because I'm old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or like um, there are, you know, very hot summer uh, vodka rocks with a lemon I love as a drink when it's hot out. I think that's one of the best things ever. My Friday nights when I get home now, I've been making a lot of martinis with about the wellest of well gin. I like beef eater, like mm-hmm. city of London. Really? Dry? F- five to one ratio, not too dry. And then I took a trick from Matt Rowley's last book about prohibition recipes and took some cocktail onions and poured out the brine and replaced it with absinthe in the oh. refrigerator. So absinthe onions in the in the martini. Nice. Are, that's a hell of a drink. That sounds so good. Um, it's very tasty. <laughs> Let's pause this. And go, <laughs> take a, go take a moment. And then I, but I also, I'll, I'll make Manhattans. I, I, and then sometimes I'll get, I'll get, I, I don't do this much anymore, but I used to do this a lot. I'll, I'll like pull down one of the old cocktail books or take out the Harrington book or the, the PDT book is my favorite mm-hmm. cocktail book. Find, just page through and find a recipe. Like, do I have all the stuff for that? I do. I'm going to try that. So I'll mess around with that. Probably I would say the, a glass of whiskey neat or a martini or the two pole stars for me. What should a 21-year-old order? That's really I mean, you can never go good. wrong with a beer. Right. But if you they want to seem a little more, you know, high class, yeah. going on a date. <laughs> a Manhattan is a good thing to order. And if you really don't like bitter at all, if you haven't, if your palate hasn't got to the point where you still only want sweet, you can do, here's the thing, that a, a drink that I came up with for, my wife has three younger sisters, um, one of them when she was quite young, but still what was learning about wine and learning about drinking I came up with a drink for her because she really wanted to have something to order at a bar, but she wasn't, she didn't like the, the flavors weren't there for her yet. And so there was nothing sort of that she liked, which she, you know, what she really wanted was a Bailey's on the rocks. And she's like, but I don't want to order a Bailey's on the rocks. <laughs> so I said, here's what you do. You go to the bar and if they have enough time to listen to you, cause you don't want to interrupt a Friday night for deep bar bartender and say, I'd like a, a Manhattan rocks, but replace half the vermouth with Galliano. So, you know, Galliano in the mm-hmm. big, tall, skinny uh, bottle with the yellow, and it's like this old Italian liqueur. It's the, it's the key ingredient in a Harvey Wallbanger, a drink that I promise you no one will make you if you order <laughs> vodka, orange juice, and Galliano. But it made it a little bit sweeter and a little bit more viscous. And it's a cool order because you like you look up behind the bar and you know it's there, and you, you have a thing. You can develop this relationship with the bartender and say, I want a Manhattan rocks, but half vermouth, half Galliano. I'm going to try that next time because I, I like a Manhattan. Yeah, it was I'll fun. try something new. Does it, it doesn't have a name. It's just the... No, I, the, I mean... <laughs> the Adam Rogers uh, listen, there's, suggestion. Well, there are 7 million bartender books and recipe books from dating back to the 1850s. So I've never been able to come up with anything that I wasn't at some point able to find in a book okay. or somebody pointed out. <laughs> but I will say that if nobody has ever come up with that before, we should call it a Katie. All righty. <laughs> 
hear a Katie. I'm going to order a Katie and see <laughs> what people say. Um, so I think so. I liked the way the book was structured. You know, you started from the beginning, from the yeast, and then the whatever fermentation, whatever. But the most important chapter, I think, <laughs> for and what people might be most interested in was the hangover yes. uh, section. The last chapter. Um, because it's the chapter that probably affects us most <laughs> intimately. So can you talk about a little bit about the some of the myths about hangovers? I know one part- particular myth that is, I think, true for me is that as I've gotten older, my hangovers have gotten really bad. Mine too. Yeah, might have gotten that, much I mean, worse. obviously that's science that something is happening in our bodies. Yeah, but, that's a, um, that is a true thing. <laughs> what are what are some other myths and is there a cure for a hangover other than well, Gatorade? Uh, I hesitate to call them myths as much as uh, it's a big blank unknown because there's so little science done on hangovers for a bunch of different kind of moral scoldy reasons that people really don't understand that much about them, despite the fact that you can find online and in drugstores all sorts of things that purport to be hangover cures. So things like, for example, dehydration, which is a pretty, it feels pretty intuitive because you wake up so thirsty and parched and because because you can you can sort of feel it. And it is true that um, alcohol is a, uh, suppresses a hormone called vasopressin, which is an antidiuretic hormone, so you, you pee a lot more when you're drinking. But it's also true that you can rehydrate and still be hungover. So, okay, well, maybe dehydration part of it, but not all of it. There, some people will talk about acetaldehyde, uh, which is a, a byproduct of the metabolization, the digestion process of alcohol. Very hard to measure that. It's, it's highly volatile itself. So if you try to take a blood sample and measure it in somebody, it might disappear before you actually do the test. Also probably not true. You know, there, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other things people will say cause hang. People will say that different kinds of alcohol cause different oh, or sure. worse hangovers, right? If you drink vodka, you won't get a hangover, but anybody who's gotten drunk on vodka knows, in fact, it's really possible to be hungover just based on vodka. The theory there is that there is that congeners, which is to say anything in the drink that's not ethanol or water, have some other psychoactive or biological effect. And nobody's ever shown what that is. It's possible, but nobody's ever shown it. There's some tantalizing stuff, um, some tantalizing results about uh, histamines. So some people say I'm allergic to red wine, it's usually not true, and also there's histamines in white wine, and people never say they're allergic to white wine. But some people do seem to have reactions to some, like allergic-type reactions um, to some spirits in wine and beer. And there are histamines in some of it, so that's possible. And histamines also are, in, in some studies, are kind of psychoactive. So maybe that's, a, that's the thing that says, like, oh, well, tequila makes me really angry when I drink, but nothing else does. That's also probably not true. Most of these kind of effects are, are probably more what psychologists call expectancies. You sort of learn narratives about how people drink and how you drink, and then you, you replay those. You reproduce those. The, the, there's, a, there's a chemical called dihydromyrcetin. It's an extract of what's called, I think, Chinese raisin or hovenia that supposedly is helpful in some it's the best thing that anybody's shown in a real study to have an impact on hangover and you do find it in some uh in some over-the-counter anti-hangover treatments but also the packaging of it not the not the paper package but the way you take it it's not clear that you can take it in a way that your body will metabolize it in a way that it will be helpful the best research that i found at the time and i don't think there's been anything better since then even suggested that hangover was actually an inflammatory response. And that would be in keeping with all the stuff we just said. The symptoms do feel like the flu. That's inflammation. The thing about uh, histamines, right, and an allergic response is an inflammatory response. So, uh, oh, and the one drug, the one prescription drug that anybody's ever tested on hangover that seemed to work was this nuclear-powered uh, anti-migraine, anti-inflammatory called Clotam. It's not in the American Pharmacopoeia 
um, I tried to get a friend in the UK to get it for me. And she was like, you want me to risk my national health service? Just like, okay, I see your point. <laughs> That's supposed to work. So all of which is to say that you can just loop back around to that thing about taking a couple of Advil before you go to bed that night. And that may be helpful. <laughs> but, you know, as you said, as I've gotten older, mine, my hangovers have gotten more brutal on less drinking. So uh, it's like like uh, like in the movie War Games. The only way to win is not to play. Yes, exactly. Right. Or know your limit. Yeah. Uh, oh, also a thing. Eat food. Drink a glass of water, a club soda between. That may not may not be a dehydration thing. It just slows down the processing of the alcohol through your guts. Yeah, so it slows down your drinking, right. too. And it slows down your drinking. That's a, that's a good thing. Like you go out and that thing where you go and you have a couple of drinks before dinner and then have a bottle of wine at dinner that's too much booze man that's just that's just too much that's that's a lot i have a a friend who's a genuinely great bartender and thinker about drinks and uh, i've been out drinking with her and she, and she laps me twice i, I just at, the last time i was with her and i and wash was like how how <laughs> is that even possible how and she's smaller than me but like l- literally two to three drinks for my for every one of mine nice like i'm and she I'm, feels okay the next day ish uh, she she can power she functions <laughs> i mean she can do it i i cannot i can't right. i never was that great at it and i certainly can't do it anymore um all right so do you have any advice for drinkers other than you know pace yourselves or for people who are brewing at home is there any like thing that you learned while you were researching mm. your book that would be good for you know for even the home brewer whether it be whiskey or on the hangover specific thing or uh, no just in oh, general, just general. Um, so I, I have, I'm really bad at brewing at home and I have never tried to distill myself. The thing that I, my, my, uh, kind of guide star for all this is, is, a looking for new things. I don't want to have a usual or an old or a thing that I only try. I, I'm really, my, my hope would be that the book might be an excuse for people to try something that they haven't before and to know that that's okay if they don't like it, they try it and like it fine and you know here's the thing you can do in a bar like part of bar culture is you can order a drink and when it comes if you take a sip and don't like it you can say this is not for me i'm happy to pay for it but may i order something else a good bar the bartender will say no no no, totally fine it's on me what can i get you you can't drink half of it and do that that's being a jerk but you're allowed to try it and send it back in the same way that if you get a get food at a restaurant you can send that back you're allowed to to work through like what's interesting and good to you about this uh, you know, it totally makes sense that you would want it's some sometimes if you want something you're secure with and you feel comfortable because you want to be happy and you don't want to think about it. Obviously, yes, of course. But there are a lot of bottles behind the bar and they're full of weird stuff. And the weirder the better. The 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 there are a couple of distilleries, craft distilleries working in the US today. St. George that I mentioned is one, um Leopold Brothers and Denver's another one, Corsair is another one, where they're really trying to make not trying to outdo what wild turkey does because you'll never be able to do that you can't beat them it's not like with craft beer where the reason the craft beer movement started in this country was that commodity beer just wasn't that good there it just the flavor wasn't great it the it was it was weak it didn't they were using adjunct grains it didn't taste good because they were trying to make it super cheaply so craft beer was a response to that but really like if you like whiskey i i defy you to say something bad about wild turkey that's not about them as it's not about business you know, but like the actual product, the thing that comes in the bottle is delicious, man. That's really good. They know how to make that stuff. So the question for a craft distiller is like, what do you, 
what are you making that's better? What's the expression that, of you as a craftsperson? Um, and there are places, I mentioned some, there are a lot of other ones that are making stuff that's, a, that's just weird, an expression of them, of these people as craftspeople, that when you taste it, it's really exciting to taste it and say, like, that's, somebody, that's somebody's art, that's somebody's soul in that bottle. And you can experience, you can, it's a way to connect with them, I think. So that, that's why I'm, I'm all on my high horse all the time about like, go try something new. You like martinis, get a different kind of gin that you've never seen before. You, you, you know, you, you see a bottle that you don't know what it is. If the bartender's not too busy, ask what it is. Find out about it. See what it's like. Taste it. None of it's poisonous, I promise. You know. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I think that does it for this episode of Script Chat. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thank His you book for is called me. Proof the Science of Booze. It's available on Scribd. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S C R I B D.com. And thanks, and we'll see you again next time.